Please open your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 1. You'll find the notes in this morning's bulletin. If you're joining us online, the bulletin should be by the link for the video. If you don't have a Bible, the text for this morning's message is on the back of the insert. And this morning, we are going to complete a chunk of James that is central to the thesis of the book. We've been working through it in four weeks. This is our fourth and final week, really just looking at the final verse. But I do want to take some time at the end of this morning's message to try to bring it all together, synthesize it. I'd like to begin by reading James chapter 1, verses 19 to 27. A word of prayer, and we will dive in. James chapter 1, 19 to 27. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Lord God, as we study the conclusion of this passage, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would see our natural face in that mirror, and that we would not depart and forget, but abide and do. We might put into practice what you show us, that we might be your sons and daughters, trying to please you, trying to be obedient. Let us not deceive ourselves, but walk in the light as you are in the light. We would have that blessing. We would practice true and undefiled religion. We would be both hearers and doers of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. When we began our study of James some months ago, I suggested as my thesis for the book, the following statement. But the central thesis of James is true faith works in the midst of life's trials by walking in the wisdom of God. True faith works in the midst of life's trials by walking in the wisdom of God. And this chunk from verse 19 to 27, I think, brings that together and sets up the major themes of the book. James will examine true faith working itself out in the midst of life trials by walking in the wisdom of God, primarily in the domains of the tongue, in our relationship to the poor and the rich and money, and our relationship to the world. And so the necessity of works to accompany faith, 
professions to be accompanied by action, and the spheres in which he will primarily evaluate that are all right here. All right here. So we've been moving through. The section began with a a triplet of things we must be in verses 19. We need to know that it is necessary that we would be three things. Quick to hear. Slow to speak, slow to anger. And then James addresses those three things. First, anger in verse 20 and 21. And then in 22 to 25, hearing. Because when James says we need to be quick to hear, he means more than just our our ears pick up vibrations in the air. But a hearing, in in keeping with the Old Testament understanding of my son, hear your father's instruction. Take it in. Digest it. Receive it. Do it. And he makes that clear in 22 to 25. And then in verse 26 that we looked at last week, he picks up, slow to speak, the tongue. And that then becomes the beginning of a new triplet. Three marks of true religion. Three marks of true religion. We looked at the first one last week. And James is incredibly concerned with the practical outworkings of faith. In other places in Scripture, we get doctrinal tests. There are clearly doctrinal tests in Scripture. If anyone denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, John writes in 1 John, this is of the Antichrist. Jesus himself, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So error on those issues. Paul making it clear that confusion over justification by faith as opposed to works in Galatians. If you're trusting in your works, if you're trusting in your baptism, you are severed from Christ. If you're trusting in anything other than faith alone for your right standing before God, you are severed from Christ. There are doctrinal tests. James isn't really concerned with those. He's assuming these believers know the teaching of Christ. He he keeps repeating it, building off of it. And so James is all about show me the works, show me your life. So the test we get here, the threefold test, is not the only test given in Scripture. But it is a true test, a valid test. What it says is true, and we need to test ourselves this morning. The first mark of true and undefiled religion is a bridled tongue. And I'll I'll thank Pastor Daniel for pointing out a nuance I did not make last week. When I focused on the bridled tongue, I was primarily focused on restraint, holding your tongue, as it's in keeping with being slow to speak. But a bridle not only restrains, but directs a horse to go where you will. And a bridled tongue and the challenge for some of us may be to speak when we need to speak. Bridling your tongue in that sense. The horse needs to turn right when it needs to turn right. It needs to turn left when it needs to turn left. It needs to stop when it needs to stop, but it needs to go when it needs to go. The notion is you've got self-control over your tongue. And for many of us, myself being probably the foremost, that's frequently in not speaking, but there certainly are times where the bridle is necessary to speak. You know you need to say something. You know you need to speak up. You know you need to offer the words of life. You know you need to lovingly correct your friend. And the bridle is needed to open your mouth and overcome your fear and speak. And so the first mark of the new birth that James looks at, the first mark of true religion, is that we are growing in bridling our tongue. It's what we're doing. If we're not, we're growing and deceiving ourselves. Growing and deceiving ourselves. And then we looked at the fact that these marks of religion come out of 
the character of God. He talks about true and undefiled religion before God our Father, which links back to verse 18. In fact, I think much of what we're seeing here links out of verse 18. Um, actually, seven, 16 through 18, that paragraph. Let's turn back there briefly. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation of shadow due to change of his own will. He brought us forth or birthed us by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God birthed us by his word. The Father of lights gave life to us by his word. And by his word, it is implanted in our hearts and it bears fruit. And so it's perfectly understandable why the God who gives life by his word, the God who grows his people by his word, cares very much about the words of his people. His word is life and light to us. And he cares greatly about our words as we imitate him. He wants his children to reflect his character. He wants our religion to be non-hypocritical. Okay? And we'll see that both in the visiting orphans and widows in their affliction and in keeping oneself unstained from the world, again, this same notion of like father, like son, bearing the mark of your household which you are in flows out of this. James is writing to people who would claim, I've, I've been born of the word. I trust if you're here this morning, you, you would make that confession. I've been born of the word. God gave me life by his word. Okay, then. It is necessary, then, for you and I to be growing and being slow to speak, quick to hear, slow to anger. And it is necessary that we not deceive ourselves, but rather confirm our faith by bridling our tongue. And now, point B, a compassionate heart. Number two, a compassionate heart. The, se- the second of three marks of true religion is a compassionate heart. He says, true and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Now, what's he, what's he getting at here? I don't think he's simply limiting this to orphans and widows. I think orphans and widows are part of a familiar triumvirate that we saw in the Old Testament. If you remember about a year ago, we did a series about race, justice, and the Bible, and we did a whole morning on exposing the evil of oppression and our duty to the widow, the orphan, the sojourner. That's, that's the triplet that shows up in the Old Testament. The sojourner, the widow, and the orphan. And they come to represent those who are, and here's your blank, powerless and vulnerable. Powerless and vulnerable. And the reason why I say not just every widow, every orphan, Paul makes it clear in 1 Timothy 5, there are, there are widows who are fine. So they're not left all alone. They're not Powerless. They're in a household or they've got means. And as he's identifying who to put on the widow's list, he makes it clear in 1 Timothy 5, if she is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers day and night, but she herself is self-indulgent, is dead even while he lives. So I think what Paul is focusing on there for the widow's list would be a widow who's got no other prospects. She's left all alone. She's being faithful. That's the idea that he's getting at here. The, the powerless and the vulnerable. In fact, we see this powerlessness and vulnerability in the very next chapter of James. Look at James chapter 2, verse 6 through 7. You've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? 
So he's living in a day where money enables oppression. We, we know the parable of Jesus of the widow crying out for justice to the judge. And these are people who can be taken advantage of. These are people who can be oppressed, mistreated, and they are vulnerable. So certainly it would include widows and orphans. And I think it would expand to anyone who fits that criteria. True and undefiled religion before God the Father is to visit orphans and widows, the powerless, the vulnerable, in their affliction. And even that word affliction makes it clear because of their powerlessness and because of their vulnerability and because of their aloneness, their suffering. In in a world surrounded by sinful people, people will take advantage of that. So that's, that's, that's the object of our compassion. Um, the second point I want to make is this. This particular category is especially honored by God. Honored and cared for by God. And the reason why I want to say honored is in the very next chapter, this church is going to give honor to the rich and dishonor to the poor, which is the exact opposite of what James has already said. Look, look back in chapter 1, verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? James is emphasizing how God has honored such people. In a few weeks, you're going to hear about how most of whom God has chosen to be his church, his people, are the poor, the nothings, the nobodies, the despised of this world, that he might shame the wise. And yet this church spread out among Asia Minor, the Greek world, is adopting the world's values and honoring money. So they are powerless and vulnerable, and yet they are honored and cared for by God. Let me read to you Exodus 22, 22 to 24. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. And I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. I don't see warnings like that for all classes of people. Yes, God hates oppression and injustice, but again and again, I see in the Old Testament, he singles out, you take care of the weak and the powerless in your midst. You guard them. You don't take advantage of them. You don't oppress them. This is true throughout the Old Testament. In fact, God names himself this way in Psalm 68. Sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord, exult before him, father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. So here's a class of people from the beginning of the Bible to the end. God has a particular concern for. He cares for them. He frequently honors and exalts them. And his sons and daughters need to as well. That's the rationale. The heart of our God is he cares for such people. True and undefiled religion. If those born by his word are going to bear the family mark. Another point, and turning your Bibles to Luke 14, I think this is probably where he's piggybacking off of Jesus' teaching, is that as you think about caring for such people, one of the things that makes it challenging is they cannot repay you. 
As I look at my interactions throughout the week, based on who I'm spending time with, some interactions I get more out of. Some people I enjoy their company more. Some people it's easier to spend time with. Some people it's more work. It's more costly. And one of the marks of this category of people is frequently in the, in the immediate interaction, you get very little out of it. Oh, I think eternally and spiritually you can get much out of it. But on the surface of it, you get nothing out of it. Well, Jesus tells a parable. You remember he's dining at the Pharisee's house and he notices how everyone's kind of trying to take the best seat, but they don't want to go too good lest they get shamed. And there's kind of this musical chairs as they're trying to do the social math of who's up and who's down. And, and he rebukes it. And he said this in Luke chapter 14, verse 12. He said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. There are people you spend time with them. You invest in them. You're likely to get something back then or later. And that's not a bad thing. It's just not a meritorious thing. It's not an unusual thing. It's not something that takes the birth of the Spirit and the Word to do. He says, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. You will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat the bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who'd been invited, Come, everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five oaks yoke of oxen. I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said to him, Sir, what you've commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in. My house may be filled, for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So Jesus first exhorts this Pharisee who invited them to a dinner party to invite those who can't repay him. And then he tells a parable of how God invited all, and he invited the rich and the powerful. They turned him down, and then God brought in the poor and the helpless as well. They cannot repay you. Back to James. And I think here's the really important part for us. We need to remember that such were we before God. Such were we before God. Turn, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. I only have three passages I'm going to ask you to turn you to apart from James this morning. But turn to Deuteronomy 10. And again, I want you to see the consistent theme. We will neglect the poor, the powerless, the oppressed when we forget who and what we are. When we think we deserve more than we deserve, when we think we are better than we are, and again and again and again, God's word cautions his people not from low self-esteem, but from high self-esteem, from forgetting their origins. 
Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong the heavens, the heavens of the heavens, the earth, and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You, above all peoples, as you are this day, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord of your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now... The Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. So there's this reminder of who God is. There's a reminder of his character. He cares for these people. You, therefore, care for these people. And remember, you were those people. Turn back to James. While you turn there, there's two ways in which God's heart, I think, is seen in this. God birthed us while we were dead. You remember our study in Ephesians. We were following the principalities of this world. We were by nature children of wrath. We were being carried along in that river that was really a canal, which was really heading to a waterfall of destruction. And while we were being carried along, he made us alive together with Christ. James says... While we were in the pattern of being lured and enticed by our own desires, desire when it's conceived, giving birth to sin, and sin when it is full bone, bringing forth, birthing death, while that was our condition, he, look at chapter 1, verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. He looked at us in our state, helpless, powerless, destined for death, and he said, live. He, his heart is the weak and the powerless, and, that, and that's who we are. You're not a Christian today because you figured it out. You're not a Christian today because you worked so hard. If you're alive in Christ today, it's because God birthed you. And we need to remember that. But ultimately, probably the best example of God's heart in this way is the incarnation itself. You know John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The word translated for dwelt among us literally is tabernacled. And it's a reminder that the Israelites had a yearly feast where they would leave their houses and make a tabernacle, a, a sort of rustic tent or hut out of sticks. Why? To remember they were sojourners as well. So God had Israel in one of their regular feasts remind themselves of their origins. You were a helpless people without a land, without a home. Make a hut and live in it, camp for a little bit, to remind yourself that. Well, then John makes that connection that when Christ entered this world, that's exactly what he was doing. He was leaving his dwelling, 
He was leaving his home, and he came to dwell with us. He came to enter into our suffering. So James says, visit or care for orphans and widows in their affliction. Christ came and visited us in our affliction. This is absolutely the heart of God. And it needs to be the heart of his people. It needs to be our heart. Okay? Remember, such were we before God. So what does this practically mean? It means we must give of ourselves to them. We must give of ourselves to them. Notice he doesn't simply say pay for, give money to. I think that's partly implied in this word. This word translated visit can also mean care for, look out for. But I, I think if we, the temptation for us, I'm going to back that sentence up. The temptation for us, especially those of us with any sort of means, is to throw money at problems. The command is to visit, to be involved in. You don't hire people to care for the widow and the orphan, and can we keep this commandment? You visit them. You go to them. You enter into their affliction. Part, part of the key here is in their affliction. That we, we, we love them. We serve them. And again, this is a common New Testament theme. This isn't some little thing James has pulled out. Listen to Hebrews 13. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And the stranger in your community has no home, has no place to stay. They're exposed. That's the sojourner, the person in your community who's a stranger. You let him into your house. He could take advantage of you. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Now look at the next command. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you yourself are also in the body. Or 1 Corinthians 12, 5 through 6. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 12, 25 to 26. That there be no division in the body, but that all the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Yes, it involves caring for, giving for, supporting but it also involves you and your time and your compassion, your concern. It is incomplete without that personal involvement. I mean, it's, it's good if you see a commercial and you want to help you know, starving children. That, that's all good. This is talking about something more than that. Finding time in your schedule. Oh, I know you're important. You're busy. You have things to do. Just like the priest who walked by the man on the side of the road did in Jerusalem. Just like the Levite did. That guy's beaten up and bloody. It might get messy. It'll slow me down. It'll derail my plans. That's what loving your neighbor looks like. And that's what Christ did for us. So I don't know where in your life you are exposed to the weak and the powerless. It may not be orphans. It may not be widows. But those who can be preyed upon... Those who have no recourse, those who have little to offer you, love them. Go to them. Care for them. And especially in our body. I mean, I think of sort of concentric circles of responsibility. We have responsibility for this local church. I have responsibility for my family. Then I'd add in, you know, the the churches in the surrounding area, my neighborhood, my community, and it goes out and out and out and out. But true religion is doing this. 
I can't tell you exactly how to do this or how much to do this, but if you want to test yourself by James's, James's rubric, by his standard, are you doing this at all? At all. If you're not doing this at all, while you're looking in the mirror and while you see clearly, why don't you purpose, plan, commit, decide to do something about that today? True and undefiled religion is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, just as God did for us. Third, mark of true religion, a holy life, a holy life, to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, this is flowing out of also verse 18. Remember, in verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits. And tied up in that notion of first fruits is best and devoted to God. He, he birthed us so we might be something, and it's holy. Holy to him, a first fruits. You get that idea clearly in Numbers 18, 12. All of the best of the oil and all of the best of the wine and the grain, the first fruits of what you give to the Lord, I give to you. First fruits are the first and best. He birthed us to be a kind of first fruits. And so here, we are to keep ourselves unstained from the world. God birthed us by his word that we might be holy. That's the thought he's picking up. Now, what does he mean by world? When the New Testament speaks of the word world, cosmos, it can mean a number of things. In John's gospel, in one sense, you can view the world simply as a unit of space, where he says the world is not big enough for all the books we could write about Jesus. That's not what he's talking about here. The world could mean the things in the world, the flowers, the birds, the trees. That's not what he's talking about here either. It's clear he's talking about here the world system. The world system, more so, is in opposition to God. The world system, ruled by the ruler of this world, that is in opposition to God, I think that's clear when he brings it up a second time. Turn to chapter 4. I'll show you why I think that's what he means here. In chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, you ask and do not receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He's not talking about the world as in God's love, the world that he gave his son. He, he means the world system, the world worldview, the zeitgeist, the, the thinking, the values, the way things are done of the world that are in opposition to God. That, that's what he means. Keep yourself unstained from that. Doesn't mean go live in a monastery. Jesus wants us to be in the world, but not of the world. To be in the world and be protected from the world, not to hide out from the world. The world system is in opposition to God. The final passage I'm going to ask you to turn to now is 1 John chapter 2. And again, this is no small theme. I doubt many people think of the sin of worldliness, the problem that worldliness poses. But Jesus and his apostles have much to say about it. It's one of the hallmarks of genuine religion that James gives. You're keeping yourself unstained from the world. Let me show you another writer writing absolutely stark terms about this. And we read these absolute statements and we tend to think to ourselves, they don't really mean what they mean. He's just trying to shock us. I don't think so. I think they mean what they say. and They say what they mean. And we need to conform our thinking and our minds to the text 
Verse 15 of chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I think he means what he just said and said what he means. That's a pretty strong statement. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. There, John links the love of the world with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You remember the three things? She saw that it was delight for the eyes, good to eat, and, and desirable to make one wise. Those three things here parallel with that perfectly. So it's not loving the world as in, that's a beautiful sunset, I love my home, I love my family. It's, it's loving the things of the world, the system of the world, the thinking of the world, the values of the world. Keep yourself unstained from that. The world system is in opposition to God. Three, beware. And you, the, the challenge here is to guard, to protect, right? We need to be alert. The first one is putting a bit in your mouth. Controlling and restraining and disciplining your tongue. The second is a go. Go love, go be with, go care for. This is a guard. Guard yourself. Because the world seeks to seduce us from Christ. The world is active in its seduction. And the reason I use that metaphor of seduction is from James 4.4. Where he says, you adulteresses. Not adulterous people is a bad translation. It's a plural feminine. You adulteresses. And the reason that matters is by saying adulteresses, James just linked what he wrote in chapter 4, verse 4, with scads of Old Testament texts where Israel is called God's whoring wife. Go to Ezekiel 18, Ezekiel 36, numerous, the whole book of Hosea. James is linking that theme. He's saying that's who we are when we love the world. You want to love the world? You just made God your enemy. Loving the world is the anti-gospel. What I mean is, Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we are having peace with God. Gospel is the news of peace with God. Loving the world is the news of hostility with God. If the gospel brings peace, loving the world brings hostility. It's the anti-gospel. It, does, it has the opposite result. James says, true and undefiled religion is marked in a people who are guarding themselves from the seduction away from Christ of the world. Point B, What does that mean practically? We are to guard ourselves from contamination. We are to guard ourselves from contamination. It's a pretty clear picture. You've got a piece of clothing on, raiment, garment, (coughs) and you don't want to get it stained. And any parent here knows what it's like to get your child ready to go somewhere, and they go out and they, my children, they have like an ingrained detector. If there is a puddle or a piece of wet mud anywhere in my yard, my two little girls will just like beeline for it. And so we want to keep them unstained. And you know how un, um, unpleasant it is when you want to go somewhere. And there they are, and they found the mud puddle. Um, that's the picture, keeping yourself unstained. And, and the implication is that you can't dally with the world. You can't play with the world. Pick it up and put it down and it not leave a mark on you, not leave a stain on you, precisely because it's seductive. You can't just pick it up and put it down without some of your affections, some of your desires being gravitated towards it. In in the same way that a married man cannot flirt some with a woman 
who's not his wife and not have some of his heart go out to her. There will be a stain. There will be a contamination. There will be a lasting result. That's the idea. So we need to guard ourselves from that contamination. Practically, I'll think of two spheres to try to keep this simple. One, you got to protect yourself, guard yourself from adopting its values, its system of values. That's exactly where James goes to next. What he's going to find out is even though the poor in the church are mistreated by the rich, God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. They can boast in their high position. The church has, at least in part, rejected that because they're honoring the guy with the gold ring and the purple cloak. They've they've bought into the world's values and systems. Let me just look at chapter 2, right? My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? One of the things that's going on here is they've adopted the world's systems and values. You've got, we've got to guard ourselves from that. And, and advertising and media is designed precisely to make converts. It's designed precisely to grab your affections and your interests, to create desire. And it's not enough to simply tell yourself, well, I know the difference between right and wrong. Guarding yourself from stain is not just knowing things, but guarding your affections in your heart, right? We've got to be careful about the movies we watch, things we interact with, and take care lest we become stained. Do I love the same things my unbelieving friends love? Do I watch the same movies? Do I laugh at the same jokes? I'm not saying, again, there needs to be a total disjunct. There are common graces, things that are good, that both unbelievers and believers can recognize. The birth of a child, we celebrate. But there ought to be a sufficient amount of non-overlap, of discontinuity, where they love things and delight in things that, that grieve me because my loyalty is with my God. We've got to guard our minds from adopting their values. We also need to guard ourselves from loving the things within it. In chapter 4, that's what he picks up there to bring up their spiritual adultery. They want stuff, and they keep coming to God to get stuff. And, that's, and Jesus teaches us to, to ask for the things we need, ask for daily bread. But the problem is they don't want stuff so they can serve and love God better. They want stuff because they want the stuff. The stuff is the ends in and of itself. And he says when they do that, they're spiritual adulteresses. It's as if when we go to God like that, this is partly what's so terrible about the prosperity gospel. You want to use God like an ATM machine. The prop, take James's picture in chapter 4, and I know we're not there yet. We'll get there, but it's going to be enough months off that you'll forget what I said when we get there. Um, the picture is like, a wife going to her husband asking for money so that she can go grab a plane and have a liaison with another man. When we come to God asking him for stuff, for stuff's sake, the way James says it this, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility with God? 
So that's, that's James' flow of thought. What we're doing, we're asking for stuff to spend on our passions, and we have become adulterous people who love the world. So we need to guard ourselves from adopting the values of this world, the thinking of this world, the judgments of this world, and we need to guard ourselves from loving the things in this world as ends in themselves. And that can get tricky, right? I love my family. But I need to frame that within, I'm a steward of people that God has led into my life and they're his to take. I love my home. Work on it, try to make it pretty. It's a stewardship. It's not the end in and of itself. And God does me no wrong if he takes it from me. But we can start to worship and value and serve and strive things in this world. And we know we're doing that when we neglect God's commandments for the things of this world. Family can be an idol. Your home can be an idol. Your job can be an idol. They can all be offered up to God as worship, but they can become loving the world. It's not enough to say, well, it's not wicked. We need to love things for his sake. So we need to be guarding ourselves from this. And so the first part of guarding yourself is recognize your vulnerability. Perhaps you're sitting here today and you don't even consider that you're vulnerable to the world. That's the danger for someone like me who knows things, who studies things. You, you can make the mistake that knowing things is somehow going to affect your heart. And, and that's not true. We need to guard ourselves. My heart can be seduced by things that I know perfectly well are wrong. I can watch a revenge movie. You know, Clint Eastwood's going to take down those guys who took care of me. I know vengeance is the Lord's. But if I watch that, my heart goes, Amen, Clint. Vengeance is Clint's. Right? I mean, I know, knowing that that's not right doesn't change the fact that my heart goes, Yeah! When he says nothing like a good piece of hickory. Right? I'm just confessing my own weaknesses. So don't make the mistake of thinking, just because you know stuff, I can tell the difference. It somehow stops your heart from going after them. As if knowing pornography is wrong is going to stop your desires when you look at it. It's not the way it works. We are vulnerable. So the first step is recognizing your vulnerability. You're not going to guard yourself if you think you're strong. You're not going to take care and protect yourself unless you think you have a weakness. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. My heart is prone to wander. And so I need to be on my guard to keep myself unstained from this world. That'll be in part by avoidance. There are going to be certain movies you're not going to watch. There are going to be certain um, relationships you may need to distance. There are going to be things you aren't going to partake in because of your weakness, lest I be drawn away. There might be movies you can watch in faith that I'm too weak to watch. My heart would cheer that on in the wrong way too much. And it also means putting what we need to love in front of us, what, what in opposition to that. If it's not the world, it's, it's God. That my heart would be delighted and satisfied in him. And so again, if we're taking this test, what are you doing to guard yourself? Is that even a category you have? May I suggest to you, while we're looking at the mirror, while we're seeing ourselves clearly, make it a category. Do something. Commit to measures to guard and protect yourself. If you're not sure what to do, talk it over with a friend. Talk it over with me. These are the marks of true religion. It's not a good sign if this is not even a category we have in our head. Keeping myself unstained from the world. So let me try to tie this whole passage up before our closing song. We've been given three 
measurements. They're not the only three measurements. The Bible has many others. First John, loving the brethren, confessing your sin, confessing that Christ is the Lord. Those are marks of Christians too. But James, three tests are still true. They're still accurate. And he means what he says. And so let's go through this. It is necessary for God's children to grow into his likeness. That's really the assumed logic here. People who have been birthed by the word and feed and grow on the word need to resemble the God of the word. Second, we must be doers of the word and not hearers only. The Pharisees thought because they heard the law, because they could quote the law, because they could recite the law, they were good. And Jesus corrected that error. You need to know stuff before you can do stuff. There's also an error in just saying, I'm just going to follow my heart and just follow Jesus and leave the Bible behind. You can't do stuff you don't know. You have to hear, but then you have to do. You have to do. Because, point three, self-deception of who and what we are is a very real danger. Twice James brings that up. He brings that up in verse 21. No, it's 22. But be hearers of the word and not be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And he brings it up in verse 26. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart. And the tragedy here is Satan's not deceiving them. The world's not deceiving them. They're deceiving them. And I'll talk to people who I think should be very concerned for where they're at in their life. And they will swear, I know I'm a Christian. I know I'm doing all right. I know I love the Lord. And I'll suggest to you again. That's exactly what a self-deceived person would say as well. Right? Right? The danger is self-deception. Now, the the, the test is clear and objective. This isn't some navel-gazing. Are you engaged in bridling your tongue? Are you in any way compassionate, visiting, reaching out to, over-concerned with, in their suffering, the poor, the helpless? especially those in our body, especially those in our community? Are you in any way protecting yourself, guarding yourself, recognizing your your danger of contamination and stain from the world? Ask your family about it. Evaluate yourself. James warns people he calls brothers about the danger of self-deception. In our individualistic age, People somehow think that some self-knowledge, I just know that I am, trumps everything. Read your Bible. That is not the way we're told to know. There's more than one. This isn't the only test, but it's a true one. Next point. How we live, then, either verifies or denies our faith. That's, That's James's big point. Or to put it Jesus' way, you know the tree by its fruit. Finally, then. These three marks we cover become the main topics of the rest of the book. That's structurally how this fits together. Chapter 2 is going to be about treatment to the poor leading into faith and works. Chapter 3, the tongue. Chapter 4, the world. Chapter 5, we're back to the poor and the rich again. And then the book ends. These are the three main measurements James is going to use to take our spiritual health as we consider faith working itself out in love. I'm going to call the worship team up for our final song and close in a word of prayer. Lord God, I pray that we would have the courage while we look in this mirror to evaluate ourselves, to test ourselves, guard us from leaving and thinking better of ourselves than we ought, deceiving ourselves, flattering ourselves. 
Lord, while we see clearly, while your word reveals our natural face and who we are, give us the conviction, the courage to decide to make change where change is necessary. Lord, we want to be, we must become doers of your word and not hearers only deceiving ourselves. Oh, Lord God, conform us into your image. By your spirit, move us to will and to do according to your good pleasure. Make us doers who please you, living out true and undefiled religion. In Jesus' name, amen.